0: From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now a moment of silence before this episode begins.
1: Today's scripture passage comes from Matthew 10, verses 28 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a small coin? But not one of them will fall to the ground without your father knowing about it already. Even the hairs on your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before people, I also will acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before people, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. Don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a mother, a man against his father, a daughter against their mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. People's enemies are members of their own household. Those who love father or mother more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who love son or daughter more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. Those who find their lives will lose them, and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. This is the word of God for us, the people of God.
0: It's a classic. It's a beloved piece of text. Tim gets God Our Good Shepherd last week, and I get Jesus the homewrecker. I mean, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. It's everybody's favorite verse. It's all over Hobby Lobby. Seriously, y'all, I knew the bishop was coming this morning. I also have a really special guest in town. She's coming to the 11, a relative. Um, And so I opened the lectionary, like, what do we get this week? And I read it, and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Actually, I said a word I can't uh, repeat here. And when Brandon and I were talking about the text, he said, well, maybe the writer only heard like bits and pieces of what Jesus was saying. Maybe he was distracted. And I kind of like that. But if Matthew was distracted, unfortunately, so was Luke, because we have a similar statement given to us in Luke's gospel. So let's begin with three things that'll make this easier to swallow. First, Jesus is giving instructions to his first disciples. That's the context. And they were surely abdicating family ties in order to follow him. It's a subversive thing to do in their day. No doubt bringing shame on their family or calling the family inheritance into question. These disciples had left home to follow Jesus and they were paying a relational cost that most of us can scarcely imagine. So it's important to read these words with that context. Second, we have to read this alongside the other things we know about Jesus, who we know Jesus to be, a nonviolent peacemaker. As Brian Clarence says, Jesus hasn't abandoned the way of peace and concluded that the way of Pilate is better, mandating that his disciples should fight, after all. He hasn't had second thoughts about all that talk about forgiveness. He hasn't given up on that love your enemy stuff, concluding that God's strength is made manifest not in weakness but in crushing domination. When we read this in context of Jesus' life, we know that Jesus isn't literally suggesting we take up a sword. And third, of course, this passage is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Jesus doesn't desire that we would experience division between family members. He doesn't hope that we would stir up conflict for conflict's sake. He's naming this as a symptom of what may happen should we choose to follow the path of the cross. I believe all those things are true, each of those points. And in making this easier to swallow, I also see my own need to dull the sword, my discomfort with discomfort. I recognize my haste to sanitize, minimize, and squish the gospel, make it palatable, make it fit right into the rest of our lives. I wonder what it would feel like to allow this text to read us this week. Don't be afraid of division, Jesus says. Don't be afraid when following me feels like a sword cutting through your attachments. Don't be afraid when people don't understand, when the way of the cross disrupts all you hold dear. Emily Towns says that Jesus calls us to be agents of agitation. So, if you're generally well-liked and respected, if your faith has not made you afraid, If your faith doesn't feel that risky or disruptive or costly, well, then we may start to wonder what compromises have been made to secure such protection. Are we following Jesus or simply worshiping him? I hope you bring a spirit of curiosity, not shame, as we enter the discomfort of this passage together. Shame is our spirits way of moving away from vulnerability. Nadia Boltzweber recalls a time when as part of a panel at an event, she was asked what kinds of things, like what spiritual exercises, what practices she does in order to deepen her relationship with God, in order to get closer to Jesus. And she recalls that she laughed out loud and without thinking, blurted out, nothing. Why would I do that? I wish God would leave me alone half the time. Getting closer feels dangerous. I'm going to end up loving someone I don't like again, giving away more of my money. I don't know. It just feels like a bad idea. She knows this is a God in the business of disruption. Who is harder to disrupt than the people who benefit from business as usual? That would not have been the reckless, poor first disciples, but those who call themselves Christian today occupy a good social location, especially American Christians, especially white American Christians. Christianity became the official religion of the Romans in the third century, and it has been wedded to empire ever since. Many of us occupy a good social location in a world in crisis. White American Christians may not want to be interrupted. So there have developed some other versions of the gospel. We've watered it down so it goes down easy. A gospel of peacekeeping rather than peacemaking. The gospel that allows us to focus primarily on protecting the prosperity of us and our family. And this cheap version isn't just less powerful, it's harmful. Last week, I heard a talk in which someone referred to American Christianity as the chaplain of capitalism and white supremacy. What if instead of becoming agents of agitation, Christians have become defenders of the status quo? So our world's in crisis, we're lucky enough to be in good standing, and messaging we receive from our systems and our Instagram ads and financial planners and other parents at school and people on next door says there's two tricks to defend your good standing if the world's in crisis, focus on you and yours, your family, your tribe, and don't rock the boat. And Jesus is going to really mess up both of these strategies. Focus on you and yours. You know, Christians make a big deal about Jesus being pro-family, and there is no doubt the fierce love many of us feel for our families is a taste of God's love. All love is. Jesus was an anti-family, but God does seem to define family differently than we do. In Isaiah, God tells us that when we turn our face from the poor, we turn away from our own flesh and blood. And then Luke records a time when Jesus's mothers and brothers showed up to hear him teaching, and someone said, hey, your family's in the lobby. And Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. If Eloise ever pretends I'm not related to her after a dance recital, it's not going to go over well. But this is what Jesus says. The gospel says that looking out for you and yours is a way bigger job, including way more people than we often think. And on the matter of not rocking the boat, I'm afraid Jesus will capsize it. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, drive out evil, follow the path of love all the way to the cross. These are his suggestions. Maybe Jesus said, I have not come to bring geese but a sword because he's not interested in babysitting the way things are because things are not well for our whole family. To follow me, Jesus seems to suggest, is to confront, which means face together all that stands in the way of true peace. To follow him is to lay down your life, and no matter how good you are at yoga, you cannot lay down your life and maintain your good standing. You cannot lay down while standing up. So we have a disruptive gospel. It's disruptive because we belong to a bigger family than we thought, and it's disruptive because love demands the death of many things. If we would prefer not to cause a ruckus, and most of the time I would, We can let Jesus remain an ornament, a nice idea, a beloved character. But, Matthew writes, protecting our life will lose us our life. That's the trait. Or we can allow Jesus to be what Jesus told us he is, the way. We just had a group of Church on Morgan families come back from the Dominican Republic with our global partner, Help One Owl. And they spent the week meeting the leaders who are empowering families to break the cycle of extreme poverty. And Rod and Twyla Davis are two of those leaders. And since the rest of us didn't get to go and be there with them, I want you to imagine, lean in, imagine you're smoking a really good cigar, sitting on a folding chair in oppressive heat, listening to Rod tell their story. Rod was kicked out of his house in Oakland, California, when he was 15 for selling drugs. And he continued to hustle and made a lot of money on the street. And when he was 20, he overdosed. And when he woke up, somebody was preaching to him. And it stuck. And Rod's been following Jesus ever since. He moved to Portland where he met his wife at church and they did something really dangerous. They took the gospel seriously. They leaned further and further in and they started to feel like God was inviting them not just to listen, but to live it. So then, get this, Rod travels to the DR and to Haiti just because he's heard that that's where the poorest of the poor live, some of the poorest of the poor. He's heard that people that God calls his family are suffering, and he feels called to go be with them. So he does, and he ends up in a neighborhood called La Vega, where he visits a barrio, a 12-street-by-12-street section where you don't live unless you have nowhere else to live. And Rod starts to feel like this is where he's supposed to move his family to. So he comes back and tells his wife he thinks they should move from Portland. Their family of four with two young children should leave Portland and go live in a barrio in the Dominican Republic. She tells him that he's crazy, and so do all of his friends, and he backs off for a while. And then about two months later, Rod walks into his bedroom, and his wife is in there weeping. And he knows why and she can't even look at him but she says we have to go. So they sell the BMW and everything they have and they move their two young children to the barrio and commit to living in less than $25 a month. And obviously their lives fall completely apart. The whole neighborhood thinks that they're drug dealers on the run. They don't understand why they're there. The family gets very sick and they don't know how to care for themselves. At one point, Rod starts to feel like he's made a a huge mistake, and he calls a friend, one of the friends who told him that he was crazy, and he asks for help affording the airfare to come back to the U.S., and the friend says, you know what? I've been praying about it, and I actually think you're where you're supposed to be. The audacity. Don't have friends like that. (laughs) (laughs) So then, they're not well. Their fevers are getting higher and higher, and the moms in the neighborhood start to take notice, and they grow very concerned. And they surround this family, and they nurse them back to health. And then they teach them how to get clean water and how to cook over a fire. And they learn how to live in that community by being cared for by that community. They become family. And Rob says this vulnerability is the foundation for everything they would go on to accomplish there. 28 years later, they're still in La Vega, They've built a school for over 750 students who face barriers to traditional education due to extreme poverty. They've developed a water purification plant, a medical and dental clinic, a soccer mentoring program, fish farming, business empowerment training and grants, a child care center, a Bible institute, and church planting in both Dominican and Haitian communities. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. If you forget about yourself... And look to me, scripture says. You'll find both yourself and me. I wonder what rises in you when you hear a story like Rod and Twyla's. Fear. Judgment. Dread. Wonder. Curiosity. Guilt. Confusion. Awe. Maybe you want to know what happened to Rod and Twyla's kids. I think... What happened to their kids is besides the point of today's passage, but I encourage you to chat with one of our families from our church who went on that trip if you want to hear more of their story. But welcome and notice whatever feeling is coming up for you. Be present with it. And let me tell you a smaller story. The other day I was writing at the Optimist coffee shop. Any Optimist fans in the house? Yes, yes. Look forward to bumping into you there. Awesome. And I was on the back patio and there was, it was crowded and there was a table that nobody was sitting at. And people kept walking over to it and then kind of giggling and walking away. And I didn't know why until I saw a tiny bird on the table that appeared to be stuck. I kept waiting for it to fly away. And at one point, a woman near me leaned over and said, I think it fell. It fell on the table, and I don't think it can move. Jesus tells us that we have a God who isn't so preoccupied with the enormity of fighting evil and oppression and violence and injustice in our world that God didn't know before we did that a tiny bird was fallen and sitting next to a tea candle on a bistro table on a back patio in East Raleigh, North Carolina. You are worth more than many sparrows, this impossible passage begins My friend Mark pointed out that the NRSV translation says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Implying that instead of simply knowing they're falling, God is falling with them, with us. The passage goes on, even the hairs of your head are counted. And my husband told me to say that God doesn't love you any less if you're bald. Math is just easier. The God who is seeking the good of our whole family adores your every freckle. It's like the child who takes roll call of her stuffed animals before bed. God lovingly claims and counts your every wrinkle, every scar, every stretch mark as beloved. In her tremendous book, which I commend to you, Dear White Peacemakers, Pastor Oshita Moore helped me remember how this belovedness is central to following the cruciform path. She writes, what the world needs are more white peacemakers who know they are beloved by a loving God and from that overflow seek the belovedness of others. Maybe we can forget ourselves because God will not. And when, out of your own belovedness, you lay aside your agenda or your position or your money or your house or that thing your family really thinks you should do or wants you to do or expects you to be, when you lay that aside to seek and proclaim and fight for the belovedness of the vulnerable, Jesus promises you will find yourself because you will be living into the truest thing about you, that you are a beloved child of God who belongs to a global family. Your belovedness never depended on your good standing. Is there better news than that? But it's not a truth we can know on our feet. It's something we learn when we lay down our lives. Maybe your story will be as dramatic and disruptive and risky as Rod and Twilas. Maybe the sword will cut you off from your smaller story all at once. Or maybe you will die by a million paper cuts. A series of small ruptures where you release again and again and again the need to be in good standing in a broken place in order to follow Jesus in bringing about the true peace of God's kingdom, in seeking the belovedness of the family you didn't know you had. This is a puzzling text. But the larger puzzle is the matter of how you will lose your life in order to find it. I'm not going to answer that for you today because, of course, I can't. Maybe the bishop can. You should talk to her afterwards. When Jesus was a baby, Simeon said to his mother Mary, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I can think of one moment when Jesus does claim his relationship to his mom. As he hangs on the cross, dying the death love demanded of him, Paying the price we reserve for those who are not in good standing, disruptive, demanding, sacrificial love poured out in solidarity with the vulnerable. As he hangs on the cross, Jesus sees his mom and he says, Woman, here is your son. And a sword pierced her soul. And then he says to his friend John, who is standing with his mother, here is your mother. And scripture tells us from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. John, the disciple, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. I picture them becoming roommates. John learning how Mary liked her fish. Mary teaching John how to actually clean his floors. John, who had left the family business to follow Jesus. Mary, who had watched her son suffer the unimaginable. They share meals. They treat each other's wounds. They keep each other safe at the market. They walk each other home. They grow old. John finds Mary's hair on the sink, 90,503. John finds Mary's hair on a plate, 90,502. One day, maybe a sparrow lands on a windowsill, and John tells Mary something that Jesus said way back when they were starting out. Mary smiles. They bow their heads for breakfast, and in the absence of all they have lost, hair, so much hair, and home as they knew it, they bow their heads and give thanks for what they have found. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.